What a joy to see you all and be with you all. I'm David Henderson. I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant. And uh, I just want to tell you what a joy it was for me to get away this week and to be able to pray for every single one of you by name. Uh, it just reminded me what an incredible gift and privilege it is to be part of the Covenant family and to have you as my brothers and sisters and to be serving God in your midst. I also want to thank you all for praying for me during this week uh, as I was dealing with kidney stones. Um, I have been completely free of pain all week, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for your prayers and grateful for God's kindness. Um, I, as I mentioned in a video I did for our Covenant Facebook page, I'm still in the Philippians 1-6 stage of this kidney stone. Uh, I'm still waiting for the one who began a good work in me to carry it through to completion. But um, So please continue your prayers. I'd love that. Well, two weeks ago, we began a new fall sermon series in which we are walking through a, kind of an overview of our calling as a church that comes to us from Scripture and uh, the discipleship process that we have, the way we think about discipleship here at Covenant. So let me just remind you briefly of some of the things we talked about over the last couple of weeks. What we said last Sunday is that the Christian life begins with God's loving initiative. That's the starting point for all of this. It all begins with God's love and his love for us as his people. I came across this awesome passage during my devotional reading this week, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 3. Indeed, he loves his people and his holy ones are in his hands. Isn't that awesome? That's where it starts. So the entire Christian life begins. Which means that the whole Christian life is a response to him and his love for us. The life of faith is a lived out response to the love of God. Indeed, he loves his people. All his holy ones are in his hands. They follow in his steps and accept his teaching. He loves us and we are called to follow in his loving footsteps, learning together to love him and to love others in response. So love is the essence of the Christian life. We are called over and over again in the New Testament to live a life of love. There are hundreds of passages in the New Testament that talk about our call to love. Here, are just, here is a handful of those that just speak comprehensively about the sort of life of love that we are called to. Live a life of love, follow the way of love, do everything in love, clothe yourselves with love, excel in love, continue in love, pursue love, walk in love. And if living a life of love is at the heart of the Christian life, then our discipleship efforts should center on learning together how to love. If a life of Christian obedience, a life that honors and reflects God is a life of love, then our discipleship process will help bring that into being. You'll remember that we have identified three overlapping dimensions in our call to live a life of love. Loving Jesus, loving one another, his people, and loving the people that God places around us, pouring out his love on the world. We also believe, and we believe that that's biblically grounded, as you saw those passages of Scripture are among many that point to those three central dimensions of our call to live a life of love. And we believe that the Scriptures teach that when we are fulfilling our call to live a life of love, we will love God, 
love one another, love our neighbor, and we believe that those same scriptures teach us to expect that a life of love will express itself in our lives in visible, tangible, predictable ways. And these are some of the ways that we uh, believe the scriptures lead us to expect to see those. When we are loving Jesus, then it will show up in our life in worshiping daily and weekly and in studying the scriptures regularly. When we love his people, that will express itself by our participating in Christ-centered relationships together and our using our gifts to serve and benefit the body of Christ. And when we are faithful to our call to this commitment to live a life of love in the world, to pour out his love in the world, then we believe that that will show up in our loving, our literal neighbors, the people that God places right in our lives in this world, and in our moving out into the world in the name of Jesus, making a difference in this world. So this morning, we are going to begin to walk through these. This morning, we'll be talking about the first of these three overlapping dimensions of a life of love, and the first of the six ways that we think that that will express itself in our life in tangible ways. So as we do that, let me just express at least three hopes, prayers that we have in shaping this series. First of all, our hope and our prayer is that each Sunday that we would be uh, renewing our commitment to live a life of love in some specific ways. Second, uh, we are hoping and praying that during this time, we would be opening ourselves together to the work of God's spirit in us as he seeks to bring these things about more and more in us and between us in such a way that, that those commitments to live a life of love will express themselves more and more in these tangible ways. We are also hoping and praying that this will be a time of our stopping and pausing and maybe taking um, a bit of a more scrutinizing look at our lives. Are there other allegiances of our hearts, other loves, other priorities that get in the way of this life that God calls us to? Are there places where our lives are just too busy or we are too absorbed with other things, even good things, to give ourselves seriously and wholeheartedly to this call to live a life of love? We hope, we pray that this can be a time of noticing the shape of our lives and listening to the invitation of God and cooperating with whatever it is that God desires to do next in our lives as it relates to our growing and living a life of love. So may God make it so. All right, well, we begin this morning with the first of these three overlapping commitments to live a life of love, and that is to love Jesus. And we'll zero in today on the first of the two ways that we think scriptures lead us to expect to see that expressing itself in the life of a follower of Christ. And that is with worshiping daily and weekly. When we experience the love of God, our love will pour back on him in a life of worship, almost automatically, reflexively. The love of God for us will result in a life of love for him. And one of the ways the scriptures lead us to expect to see that is in a life of worship. There are two parts to that expectation. One more formal and routine and one more informal 
and ongoing. The more formal and regular part of that is our weekly worship. Gathering together in person with the rest of the church family, reenacting Revelation chapters 4 and 5 as God's people together approach God on his throne, bringing him our worship, offering ourselves back into his service. We believe that recalibrates us to reality. It reminds us of the truest things of all, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who share our same understanding of reality and with whom we have in common the most important things of all and who can love and encourage us in the things of God. Sunday morning is our hard reboot. It's the time when we power off the computer, we restart it, we, we get our updates, we, we work through the bugs in our system. There's a troubleshooting process that God by his spirit does as we stop before him that leads ultimately to our lives running more smoothly and effectively for him. That weekly in-person time together is so crucial and non-negotiable. I think, I don't know about you, but I think COVID inertia has tried to convince us that it's actually optional and not all that important. And I think also cool and trendy new views of Christianity try to convince us that, you know, we can really just worship pretty much anywhere we want to and with, ever, with whoever we want to or not by ourselves out in creation. And this Sunday morning time-specific, place-specific, people-specific thing isn't really all that important. But that's not true, and that's not biblical. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, don't stop meeting together with other believers, which some people have gotten into the habit of doing. Instead, encourage each other, especially as you see the day drawing near. That cornerstone and that starting point of our worship life as followers of Christ is our weekly worship together. So let me just pause and ask. I love that you all are here this morning. How consistent are you in your worship life? How faithful are you to build the entire rest of your week around what happens with us together on Sunday mornings? What is God saying to you about anchoring yourself into our corporate worship as your source of life and strength and as a reminder of what's true? So there's a more formal and regular part of our worship life, which is our once a week worship gathering as the people of God. But there's also a more informal and ongoing part of our worship life, which is our daily worship. Now, some of you who have been part of the evangelical tradition for a while, you may be thinking that where I'm heading is talking about a quiet time. And I am and I'm not. So the, a quiet time is a term that has been used by Christians for the last couple of generations, really going back to the middle of the last century to describe a time that is set aside every morning to read scripture and to pray. It was in the middle of last century that InterVarsity Press came out with a uh, little booklet called Quiet Time that ended up impacting a couple of generations in the life of the American church. It probably won't surprise you to learn that while quiet time was a new name, it was describing an old and familiar practice. Before that, in the early 1900s, in the later 1800s, it was called the morning watch or an appointment with God. And in fact, you can pick up the thread and follow it of quiet times going all the way back through the 1800s, 1700s, 
1600s and into the 1500s. During the Reformation, we see people like uh, Protestant reformers like Thomas Cranmer and, and Martin Luther uh, urging people to have morning prayers and evening prayers. You see the same thing on the Catholic side of the Christian family. Ignatius of Loyola encouraging every Christian to have a prayer of commitment in the morning and a prayer of examination in the evening. And then you can go back past that, past the, the time of the Reformation, all the way back to the time of the early church where we see from John of Chrysostom and, and Augustine and other leaders, the urging that every follower of Christ would have a set-aside time of prayer every morning and every evening. I, I started collecting, uh, as I was working on this sermon, I kind of rabbit trailed and started collecting some of these amazing morning and evening prayers. I'm sorry I can't share any of, of them with you now because of our time. Uh, but uh, you might enjoy doing some rummaging around and coming across some of those. So while beginning and ending the day with prayer like that can be so important, really is so important, the crucial part of that is not fulfilling a task or satisfying an obligation. It's not putting a check mark in a box, but having a personal connection with God in those times that are intended to spill over into the rest of the day. Sharon and I have been having weekly date nights for, wow, almost 40 years. We've been married for 38 years. We started when we were dating and we've carried that all the way through. So um, imagine what would happen if I started setting aside that time each week to honor Sharon, but didn't invite her to be part of it. No, really, hon, you can go ahead and do other things. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna celebrate our date night. Well, several years ago, I realized that's exactly what I was doing with my quiet times. I would spend time with scripture. I would spend time with my prayer list, but I wasn't really spending time with God. The way a quiet time is supposed to work is the same way that a date night is supposed to work. You set aside a specific time to be together with a thought that that will spill over into all the rest of the time that you are blessed to enjoy with each other. That it will draw your hearts closer and it will move you to connect more often and more deeply throughout the day and throughout the week. So morning and evening prayer, as something that was urged upon the believing community all the way back from the very beginning of its life, was not meant to satisfy an obligation, but to spark a connection and to, to further an affection that would find expression all through the day. As Clement of Alexandria prays in about 200 AD, night and day until the last day of all, may our praises give you thanks and our thanksgivings praise you. And he's just reflecting the invitation that we find in lots of different places in the New Testament, including specifically in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So God's love moves us to respond to him in love. And that love will find expression in worship that takes place in a more formal way, weekly, when we gather together as God's people and are re-anchored to reality and to the presence of God. And it will also take place daily as we give our lives back to God and offer ourselves back into his service 
And not only daily, but all throughout each day as we walk with God all through the day, responding to his loving involvement in our lives with praise and with thanks, offering ourselves back to him, asking for his help for us and and for others, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for those we love all throughout the day. So what I'd like to do is to spend the last part of my time this morning with you to, to hold before us a picture of what that can look like. I'd like to bring us into one specific psalm that I think uh, can really give us a picture of what it's like to worship God weekly and daily and all throughout every day. It certainly has helped me in that way. Uh, A number of you know that um, every day in my scripture reading, I always read a psalm um, and uh, as well as uh, a portion of the Gospels and other parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and if, if I find that that psalm is one that God is really using to, to uh, speak to my heart, I'll often just stay in that psalm for the next several days as long as God continues to do that before I go on to the next one. Well, I have been in Psalm 84 for the past two months or more. It just continues to speak so deeply to my heart. So I'd like to just walk us through it quickly and highlight a couple of things that I think are really significant about this passage. So it's a psalm about worship, about the formal dimensions of worship as the people of God gather together for corporate worship, but also the more informal and daily worship. So we're told in the note that is attached to the beginning of this psalm that this is a song that was written by the sons of or the descendants of Korah. Korah and his family members were Levites, and they were given a specific assignment in the work that they carried out as part of the, the, um, the believing people's worship life. Their job, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 9 and chapter 26, was to serve as the gatekeepers of the temple. Uh, Several of them were posted at each of the four gates uh, and also along some of the roads leading up to the gates and also guarding some of the storehouses of the temple. As items would be brought into and out from the temple, they would count them to make sure that they were all there. And they would actually spend the night at the, the temple gates Um, as a way of guarding and protecting the temple grounds. And they were the ones who had the key that opened up the gates to to, uh, open the way for the people of God to gather for worship every morning. So I think while that's valuable to know that these these sons of Korah, uh, their vocation was lived out on the temple grounds. Uh, Their calling was connected with the the temple. But I think uh, there's another thing that's really important for us to to notice, And that's the, the way that they would have conceived of the significance, the importance of the temple as a building. Reflecting the language that is used in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, referring to the temple as the dwelling of the Lord, the house of the Lord, and the house of God, the psalmist begins the psalm by speaking of the temple as God's dwelling place. This is where God lives. How Lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies. But Solomon made clear when he built this very temple and when he dedicated it, he made clear that this was not God's dwelling place. The temple was just a symbolic way of expressing the fact that God desired to draw near to his people and to be available to them. The temple was a reminder of that reality. Listen to the prayer that Solomon prayed at the dedication of this very building. 
But will God really live on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less the temple that I have built. Nevertheless, listen to my prayers and my plea. O Lord, my God, hear my cry and the prayer that your servant is making to you today. May you watch over the temple night and day, this place where you have said, my name will be there. May you always hear the prayers that I make toward this place. May you hear the humble and earnest quest request from me and your people when we pray toward this place. Yes, hear us from heaven where you live. And when you hear, forgive. But the psalmist seems to think, he seems to have lost track of this truth, that this is not the place where God lives. And he refers to the temple as God's dwelling place in verse one, and he refers to it as God's house in verse four. So here's the point of perspective that the psalmist has starting off into this psalm in the first four verses. I think we really see this reflected. The perspective seems to be, I want to be near you. You are in the temple, so I want to be in the temple. Right? That's how it unfolds. Listen to that as I read these verses. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and and the swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar. O Lord of heaven's armies, my King and my God, what joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. So from his perspective, the house of God is where God is present. The house of God is where the psalmist is present. What joy for those who live in the house of God. So based upon what we know about the sons of Korah and based on that starting perspective, the psalmist really could have ended his prayer there. God, this is where you are. This is where I am. That's really cool. What joy. In the New Testament times, we see the parallel between approaching God in the temple and our gathering together as the people of God on Sunday morning. Approaching God for worship on the first day of the week. And what joy that is as we encounter God in this place. But then the psalmist makes a turn. So what if, what if I'm not at the temple? Then what? What if I can't be in the temple? What if something keeps me away from the temple? Then what? Well, then what joy when you are on your way to where the Lord is, he prays. Verse five, what joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord and who have set their minds on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. If you're not there, well, then get there and then you can experience the presence of God. But then there's another unexpected development, a widening of his perspective that is so crucial. He says, actually, when you are on your way to the temple, You don't just experience God's presence and strength once you get there. You are going to experience God's strength along the way there. Verses 6 and 7. When they walk through the valley of weeping, it will become a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessings. They will continue to grow stronger and each of them will will appear before God in Jerusalem. I don't just experience joy when I'm with you in your temple. I experience joy when I'm on the way. 
even when I'm in the valley of weeping. Not just when I get through it, but when I'm in it. I'll be refreshed by springs in the valley of weeping. I'll encounter blessing when I'm in the valley of weeping. I'll go, grow stronger. It says, it says that I'll go from strength to strength in the valley of weeping. The psalmist has to rethink his perspective about where God is to be encountered. Clearly, it isn't just God's strength and his refreshment and his blessing that we experience out in the valley of weeping. We actually encounter God himself. He is there. He is there every bit as much as he is in the temple. Oh, Lord, God of heaven's armies, hear my prayer. You who are here with us, wherever we are right now, listen, O oh God of Jacob. O oh God, look with favor upon the king. Our shield, look, uh, show favor to the one that you have anointed. So what exactly is the Valley of Weeping for the sons of Korah? We don't know. I mean, it could be a particular place. The Valley of Baha is uh, what it says in Hebrew. Or it could be any painful circumstance in which the psalmist or we find ourselves or I think it's really likely that the valley of weeping is everywhere outside of the temple gates. Every place else on the planet is the valley of weeping. Interestingly, in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, we are told that the sons of Korah were among those who were taken into exile in Babylon, 900 miles away from Jerusalem, 900 miles away from the temple, for 70 years, for multiple generations. Now what? How do we access God? It may be that this psalm was written then, when the people of God were in exile and the sons of Korah had to finally rethink where is God to be found? How do we access him? So we don't know exactly what the valley of weeping is, but what we do know is that psalmist has to rethink where his joy is found and where God is found. It isn't just God's strength and his refreshment that are found out there. God himself is found out there as well. A single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. And Lord, your courts are everywhere that I am because wherever I am, there you are. For the Lord our God is our sun and our shield, and he gives us grace and glory, even there in the valley of weeping, especially there in the valley of weeping, you are and you provide everything that I need. O Lord of heaven's armies, what joy for those who trust in you. What joy for those who live in your house? Yes. What joy for those who have set their minds on a pilgrimage to your house? Yes. But, O oh Lord of heaven's hosts, what joy for those who trust in you. Here, now, whether in the temple courts or in the valley of weeping, what joy for those who seek you and find you and find their rest in you wherever they are, whatever their circumstances. Here's what's true, says the psalmist, wherever you are or wherever I am, you are. Whatever I face, you are in it with me. Wherever I am, if I am seeking your face, I am standing in your courts. And it's better to be there than to be anywhere else. 
As you probably know, when the Bible speaks about joy, it's usually speaking of of a faith perspective and a set of convictions that we have more than it is an emotion. Joy is a settled confidence in the goodness of God no matter what. What joy for those who trust in the Lord. So in real life, in real time, what might this actually look like to to reside within the truths of this psalm and to, to live out a worship life weekly, daily, and throughout every day? Okay, so let me just let me just have you imagine with me. Let's just let's just imagine a person that you know. And I'm just I'm just pulling this out of the out of the air. Imagine that someone you know had a herniated disc about four months ago, and then had to have surgery for that, and and recovered quickly from the surgery. But the the nerve damage took a longer time to recover from. And then while they were still recovering, imagine just kind of, again, just making this up, that he had to fly to California to do a memorial service. And on one leg of that trip had an actually absolutely incredible spiritual conversation with a woman sitting next to him. But on another leg of that trip, sat next to a woman who was coughing uncontrollably the entire time from whom he received the gift of COVID. And then imagine that, that it took him three weeks to recover from the symptoms of COVID. But imagine this. He didn't even realize he had COVID until he got to Idaho on the, another trip a week later to be with his covenant group guys for a week and then to enjoy vacation with his wife in Colorado for some more days after that. And he had to not be able to be with his covenant group guys. He had to cancel his trip with his wife to Colorado and drive back across the country COVID-aided. And then imagine at the end of that, just as those symptoms relieved, that he got a bronchial infection that went on for two more weeks and depleted him of energy. And on the day his symptoms ended, imagine that on that day, he got hit with a kidney stone that flattened him. Can you imagine? All right. So just all of that, just pulling it out of the air. Yes, of course, that's me we're talking about. Okay. As I've been living in the psalm and in its perspective and in its promises, these truths have been working their way from the page into my mind and then into my heart and then into my soul in an incredibly significant way. These words have become such a sweet invitation for me to walk through each day with the Lord in a posture of expectant worship and trust and dependence. Being part of Sunday morning worship has become for me not just something I want to do, but something I absolutely need to do. I have to be recalibrated in the reality that God is on the throne every Sunday. And I have to be re-embedded in the loving embrace of the people of God every Sunday morning. Every night as I lie down, I have been saying to the Lord, what a day of joy. Not because it has been. Not because that's what I felt, but because I am seeking to live in a posture of deep trust in the goodness and involvement of God throughout each day. And then inevitably, as I say that, I, the Lord begins to bring to mind one thing after another after another, which has been my experience of his goodness and his faithfulness and and his loving involvement, his trustworthiness throughout that day. 
And then every morning as I begin the day, lying there in bed, I've been saying to the Lord, thank you for this day of joy. Not because it necessarily will be, not because the circumstances of the day are the way I want them to be. They rarely have been for the last several months, but because God promises that he will walk through this day with me. And by doing that, I start the the day leaning into his presence in a posture of anticipation. And then doing that, I find I experience his loving presence throughout each day. And all through each day, I've just been reaching out for the Lord and whispering, Lord, I long, I faint with longing to be in your presence. Better is one day in your court than a thousand anywhere else. Lord, let me be in your courts today. There he is in the valley of weeping, and there I discover that I am in the courts of the Lord. That's one picture of one way it can look. How does God want it to look for you? What is God's invitation to you this morning? What needs to be rearranged in your life to make room for a vibrant life of worship? Not only every Sunday, but every day. Not only every day, but all through every day. How would God have you respond to his love with a life of love and